This podcast is brought to you by Grandpa Still Remembers. Grandpa Paul's practical parables are part of his real-life experiences. What is learned from the life we live has a lot to do with the perspective that defines our priorities. What is remembered is colored by our perception of the purpose for which we have the privilege of living in the first place. Last week, we thought a little about counterfeit money. The counterfeit American Express traveler's check paid to an innkeeper at Mahagi was able to buy goods and services. The American cyclist traveling the length of Africa no doubt had other currencies in his backpack, possibly including some authentic U.S. $100 bills. We began to wonder if the Zaire issued by the government was also counterfeit. Money is thought to be an indicator of the value of something, but when the value of the money changes every day, how can anyone tell what something will cost when he needs it? With the depreciating Zaire, it was certain that the price in Zaire's would increase. The Darm workmen had apparently put some thought into how they would deal with the rapidly devaluing money and the requirement that they provide school notebooks as needed. When we traveled to Bunya to buy dorm supplies, they asked us to buy and keep in stock for them some cases of the thin 32-page school kayes they had to send to school with their children. If I could buy two large cases in Bunya and sell to them as needed for the next several months, it would cost the workers less than one-fourth the rate price at the current exchange rate. Their regular monthly pay increases would make them cheaper and cheaper, as the money devalued. I tried, but failed to help the workers that time. I found the cahiers were sold in cases of 500 booklets, and I noted down the price per case. The sacks remaining in the cab of the Isuzu truck held sufficient money from the field treasurer to purchase two cases of the notebooks, so I placed the order and had the shopkeeper establish the invoice. He sent his men to get the cases of notebooks for me. I took the invoice to the truck and returned with Zaire's in bricks, bundles, and stacks to count out the total as on the invoice. When I placed the invoice with the carefully counted money on the counter, he pushed it back to me. Maybe he was hoping for dollars. He absolutely refused to sell the cahiers to me. His paper was apparently worth more to him than the paper I had offered in exchange. I was ready to buy a large percentage of his stock. He would be forced to spend all that money for new merchandise before the Zaire lost its value. It's possible he hadn't yet purchased the cases of school notebooks, just knew where he could get them, and that he anticipated making an immediate significant profit. Of course, if the price there had increased, he might realize no profit at all. Increasing the number of Zaires you had was very easy, but using that increase before it devalued was nearly impossible. Placing money in the bank was known to be foolish by any merchant. Oh yes, they would take it, give you a receipt, increase your account balance, and keep it from being stolen. But savings accounts that devalue are meaningless. 
Only you could withdraw the money, but the bank limited the amount that could be withdrawn on any given day, and foreign currency could not be purchased. Your money would devalue rapidly, and there was nothing you could do about it. Saving the profit wasn't possible. The merchant found the product he offered for sale to be a more useful currency than the devaluing Zaire. I think the real reason the invoiced and paid sale was cancelled was that the merchant decided he would rather keep his paper and sell a few school kaies each day at an ever-increasing price and spend the income immediately at the marketplace. There he would pay the higher prices to get roughly the same amount of food he would have gotten at the cheaper prices a few weeks earlier. I didn't argue further with the clerk. His notebooks, sold a few at a time, at higher and higher prices, would bring in enough to purchase what he needed to buy at the marketplace. If all he had was my bricks of Zaire's, their value would drop daily. We employed about twenty workmen to accomplish all that was needed to be done at the Ray the Academy, and of course they needed to be paid. Since the money was now devaluing so rapidly, with newly printed ever-larger denomination bills being put into circulation, we increased their pay every month. The funds to operate the boarding school were received from the children's parents as U.S. dollars in our dorm account at Bunya, so we bought the Zaires through the field treasurer only as needed. We modified the workers' wages by calculating a conversion factor based on the prices of a list of common purchases. Just before paying wages, we sent out three trusted men to record the current prices from three local marketplaces. The average price for each item was inserted into our formula to obtain the conversion factor for the months. Some prices at the SOCO might have doubled. Others increased by only 20%, but we did the best we could to increase their pay as the cost of living increased. The formula was fairly complicated, modeled after the one used by the contractors installing the Coda hydroelectric plant. The formula was used to calculate the installments to be paid in Zaire's as the work progressed. Theirs was based on quantities of construction materials, time the ratio of the old price to the new price. Ours was based on what a family of six would purchase at the Soko, each item multiplied by the price this month divided by the price last month. The workmen realized that a debt had to be repaid and that the older the debt, the easier it was to repay. We allowed the workmen to have advances on their salaries up to half their anticipated wages for things like hospital bills or school fees. Their last month's salary times the conversion factor, less the deduction to pay their accumulated debt, could leave more than two-thirds of last month's salary even though they had already spent half. To offer a fair wage and money that devalued daily meant the employer needed to continuously increase wages, and those wages needed to be able to buy what was needed to live. It was amazing how long the nearly worthless Zaires continued to be used. Salaries were paid, items were sold in the small shops, food was sold in the marketplace. With the local people having no other money, the opportunity to make a vast profit was available to any who had access to foreign currencies.
The exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and the Zaire was more closely monitored than ever before. The idea that salaries and prices should be calculated in dollars seemed reasonable, but of course all payments needed to be made in Zaires. No prices were posted in the local shops. If anyone wanted to buy something, he asked the price. The shopkeeper took out his cheap calculator, multiplied by an exchange rate he got somewhere, showed the buyer the price, and then waited to see if the buyer agreed. The basic rule of thumb was, if you have enough Zaires to buy the items, spend them immediately. I'm not sure how the small shopkeepers knew the reference price for each item, but with a limited variety of items offered, they probably just memorized the prices in U.S. dollars. One, who claimed to be a government inspector, arrived in my office one day to explain to me the serious offense I had committed marking prices in a foreign currency. Our discussion lasted several hours, him insisting that I had a large fine to pay and my refusal to admit fault as the director of Edition Seca. He finally gave up when I showed him a government print order for an official airport document for the Bunya Airport. The price they instructed me to print on the form was $50. I did give him a ream of paper. Coffee exporters could buy hand-sorted sun-dried coffee beans from the growers for next to nothing, using Zaire's, of course. After exporting and selling a 12-ton truckload of coffee, they could bring back a truckload of merchandise bought with less than a quarter of the U.S. dollars or Uganda shillings earned. The balance of the hard currency would purchase more Zaires than was needed to purchase the coffee in the first place, so hard currency began to be found in Quandrama. There were stacks of $100 bills hoarded by truckers like Mbikba and Mugasa, who exported coffee and other goods to Uganda through Mahagi. Salt, sunlight, soap, school kayes, big pens, union matches, and other small items carried in the small shops came from Uganda, so Uganda shillings were in demand as well, purchased somehow by those wanting to get rid of Zaire's. The 50,000 and the 100,000 Zaire notes were fairly common, the 500,000 and the 1 million notes recently printed in Germany were crisp, colorful, beautiful things, utilizing all the most recent security features. The older, most abundant notes were torn, tattered, damp, and filthy. They were often tied into bricks, simply remaining that way. Ever-larger cash boxes were required. Banks did not take any old currency out of circulation. Zaire again decided to take action to revalue their money. Last time, they had removed the highest denomination bills, the 5 and 10 Zaire notes, from circulation by printing new notes of the opposite colors. This time, they decided to replace all the money with what was officially called the Nouveau Zaire. The local people called the new currency the Zaire Lourdes, apparently heavy because one of the new Zaires was to have a value of five million times the value of the original Zaire. In theory, one could purchase the new currency with the old currency at the nearest bank. The nearest bank was in Bunya, a hundred miles from where we lived and worked at Raithi. 
In our experience, under the best of conditions, in dry season, the trip over the dirt roads could be accomplished in about five hours. In rainy season, when the red clay dust was converted into a slimy surface on the hills, and the dried mud holes transformed from deep pits in the road to truck-stopping sloughs, eight hours of effort could end with one still far from the bank. Creating a one-track trail off the road around the disabled overloaded truck in the mud hole might succeed. One might get to the bank by road, but not if you lived in Zondiland. If anyone had saved a significant amount of money, he had to get it to a bank by whatever means available. MAF did offer weekly flights in small five-passenger Cessna planes, but they weighed both the passenger and his baggage. A brick of money was 25 bundles of 25 notes of the same denomination. A pile of 24 bills, all oriented the same way, face-up, was kept together with the 25th bill placed at a right angle across the stack and folded around the others to make a bundle. 25 such bundles were made into one stack and cross-tied with homemade sisal twine. The bricks then became a useful unit of currency, but each brick weighed about a pound. A one-pound brick of money contained 625 bills, and if made up of 5,000 Zaire notes, the total value was about $1. The weight of the boxes of money times the MAF freight rate per kilo per mile, charged in U.S. dollars, was billed to the customer's account. It would cost more than the value of the money to fly it to the bank for exchange. This was true for a second church in Zondiland, which sent their savings by MAF to Bunya for exchange. The MAF transport invoice far exceeded the theoretical value of the money, which was never accepted by the bank, but was stored indefinitely in an attic in Bunya. Dealing with devalued money was a challenge. Couple months, there was no money in that part of Zaire at all. You've been listening to Paul's Parables, stories conveying a spiritual lesson from the perspective of a foreign culture. Mm-hmm.